When most people talk about knowing their ABCs, they're referencing the alphabet. But here at Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA, we're talking about the ABCs of behavior. Each week, we'll discuss a topic in the world of animal training and break down the science of behavior change. One of the great things about behavior and training is that it relates to animals of every kind. So whether you're training a lion or a tiger or a bear, oh my, or your pet at home, this podcast is for you. So without further ado, let's talk some training. Hello and welcome to Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA. Today we are continuing on with the panel group from episode 30, answering some of the questions from you, our listeners, about the previous 29 episodes. And joining me today once again on our panel, we have Trisha Dees, Sarah Duggar, and Justin Gardner. Before we get into part two of this panel discussion, answering some of the questions from you, our listeners, about the previous 29 episodes and topics discussed on Animal Behavior Conversations, did also want to get everyone excited for next week. Because if you are listening to this in real time, this is the last week of September 2023. And coming up next week for the month of October is Behavior Month. So Behavior Month is something that was started two years ago. This will be the third year. And basically, it is a time to just see some amazing training, behavior, advancements in our field from people, facilities, and animals from around the world. So every single month, during the month of October, every day, a new contribution will be on the ABMA's Facebook page. So we have people from all over the world that have sent in some really amazing videos. We have a couple webinars, all those things about behavior. So if you aren't already, please follow the ABMA on social media, on Facebook, and tune in every single day because you're going to see some really cool content. And then each week of Behavior Month actually does have a theme. So the first week of October, it's the Cooperative Care Week. Second week, we have the evolution of enrichment. The third week, we have the human-animal connection. And then our fourth week is welfare around the world. So we'll have some topics and some contributions focusing on each of those topics. Each week during October, our podcast episode is actually going to be related to that week's Theme. So next week we have a podcast episode with Vader Stillard talking about cooperative care training. And then as well, every single Friday, we have a special guest that's going to be joining us on a Zoom that is open to anyone to join. If you head on over to the ABMA's Facebook page, you're going to be able to find information on how to register for that. We'll have a special guest that talks about the topic. We will have as many of the contributors from the week that can make it on the Zoom call to answer questions about their content, and then also just have a discussion about the week's theme or anything else that people would like to talk about. I love these Zoom series because it's a great way for all of us to continue to connect throughout the year. So hopefully we'll see some of you joining us on the Zooms. And if you can't make them, they will be recorded and you can watch them on the ABMA social channel. And we'll also post the links to that as well. Additionally, if you are a member, we have some incredible member resources for you during the month of October. And if you're not a member, 
now is an amazing time to join because we do have a discount to membership and all of these brand new resources coming in. So a lot of our contributors were able to give us resources to share with our membership. So make sure you stay tuned in to the ABMA during the month of October for Behavior Month because it is a truly incredible month of being inspired and continuing to celebrate the wins of our trainers and our animals and continuing to advance and progress the field of behavior management. So now that we are all excited about Behavior Month starting next week, let's get into today's episode. This is part two answering a lot of the questions that some of our listeners had sent in about the previous 29 episodes. And joining me again, we have our panel, including Trisha Dees, Sarah Duggar, and Justin Garner. So let's get right into the conversation. So joining us again today to do part two of our podcast in review, answering some of the questions that our listeners have sent in for the first 29 episodes, we've got the panel back again. We have Trisha Dees, Sarah Duggar, and Justin Garner. They've been on a couple of episodes already. The last episode, episode 30, was the beginning of this discussion, answering our listeners' questions. So check that one out. So if you don't know who these people are, they're going to go a little more in-depth about who they are in those other episodes. But today, we're going to do a short little intro Trisha had the idea of everyone saying their involvement in ABMA, and I am going to throw a wrench in and also tell everyone your favorite animal, because that just feels like what we're doing today. So, Trisha, go ahead. Ooh, tricky shade. Okay, um, I I am Trisha Dees, and I've been a member of ABMA since about 2008, no, 2006, 2004, probably. I'm really old. Started doing a presentation, fell in love with the organization, been on the board, been president, and now I'm the sponsorship committee. Shane, do you want a specific name of who my favorite animal is currently, or do you want me to give you a species? Oh, I was thinking species, but I mean, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) Hopefully the other animals aren't listening. (laughs) Um, Well, if you put a gun to my head and asked me who my favorite animal is right now, I would say dot. If you asked me who my favorite species is right now, I would probably say Asian small flat otters. Oh, Ooh, I didn't expect that one. Yeah, that was a curveball. Start hot take here on the, on the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> All right, Sarah, your turn. Uh- Hi, I'm Sarah Duggar. I'm the founder and behavior consultant with Good Dog and Company. Um, And I've been at ABMA conferences in the past. Um, When I was in the zoo field, I presented. And this is my third podcast episode now with ABMA. So super happy to be here. And my favorite animal has not changed since about the second grade. It's still a tiger. And my favorite individual tiger is Chewy at Shine Mountain Zoo currently. And finally, we have Justin. Hey everyone, I'm Justin Garner. I have been involved with ABMA since around 2015 or 2016. I am currently one of the directors on the board of directors. um, And I was president in 2019. 
and I'm also currently the government affairs and membership committee co-chair. And what's your favorite animal, Justin? Oh, a fa favorite animal. Shane, you know this. Unfortunately, it's not Cornelius, um, the hornbill. I mean, uh. I love Cornelius. He's amazing. But my favorite species is definitely California sea lions. My favorite individual animal, I would have to say Chase, who is not a sea lion, but he is a cheetah. Well, I made you guys do that. And since I'm the host, I don't have to answer those questions. So we're going to move on. <laughs> not fair. <laughs> Just kidding, everyone. I will also play along and answer the question. My favorite animal species are lemurs in general. If you make me pick a specific species, it's injury, which are nowhere in human care. So if you don't know what that is, look them up. They are amazing. They're the largest lemur species. And my favorite animal of all time, I don't know if anyone will ever beat him, is Ray, the radiated tortoise at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. All right, so this next question comes to us from episode 21, where we talked about capturing. And the question is, if you manipulate an animal and they do a behavior, is that capturing, molding, or something else? The way I've always learned and utilized capturing is the behavior is already happening. Um, and you're just kind of watching the animal and everything it's doing. And when that behavior happens, you reinforce that behavior that you're looking for. If you're manipulating or molding an animal, physically moving them into a position and then reinforcing, I have never learned that that is capturing. Because the animal, if you're reinforcing anything, you're reinforcing the animal, um, basically just letting you move their body into a position. And that behavior, it sounds like that behavior is not already occurring, because if it was, then you wouldn't have to manipulate them into said behavior or position so uh, and my understanding is capturing the behavior is already happening you're just reinforcing it to make it more likely to occur again in the future capturing is spontaneous of the whole behavior right and i think molding is a term used to physically manipulate the animal into doing the behavior that you want them to emit and then in in that case when I read this question, I wanted the word manipulate to be defined because that in my mind, I was kind of assuming manipulate means forcing physically like a dog to go into a sit, for example, pushing the rear end down, right? That's exactly what I was thinking of in my head, yes. And that's a, and just for, because we haven't talked about a, a definition of molding is the process of pairing the physical manipulation of an animal's body with reinforcement in order to teach the animal to move in a certain way or assume a specific position. So I, and my understanding of that is exactly the classic example of molding is exactly what you said, where you're moving the dog's rear end down to the ground, then pairing that with whatever the reinforcement is. Yeah. For me, I would look at that as maybe a negative reinforcement procedure where the dog is avoiding pressure on his rear and going into a sit position to avoid the pressure on the rear and adding a treat is probably just for our own you know feel good feelings about it's, act 
I agree with you, Sarah, because it's kind of like what we were talking about before, that the treat or the reinforcer is not driving that behavior. The, yeah. What's driving that behavior is avoiding, let's just use the dog sit example, is avoiding the the human pushing on your bum down to the ground. So then you learn, I might as well just put my bum down on the ground so that I don't have to feel the owner's hand pushing down, which actually brings up another point that we talked about earlier. It doesn't mean that the owner is like hitting the dog or abusing the dog, but it still would be aversive enough, potentially, that the dog would choose to do it rather than feel that physical manipulation. Yeah, I guess we would have to kind of just see how it plays out because adding the treat could mean the dog lets you every time press against its rear and maybe the hand doesn't even become an aversive stimulus and your hand is required to maintain the behavior. My inclination personally is like, I'm going to teach the animal to move to whatever point. Like if I'm trying to get it to 90 degree angle, like I'm personally going to probably use like some kind of targeting where I'm teaching the animal to move it, where I've seen a lot where it's just, it gets moved and then bridged for that movement with the hands. And then slowly the hands, they, you know, the animal anticipates moving it. So the human's hands would fade out eventually. Get slippery where people are bridging them doing something to an animal and the animal not reacting. And we just have to understand that that is not an operant behavior, right? So I've seen it before where for blood draws on lots of animals, like they get bridged and reinforced for the stick. And then that's very quickly just distracting the animal from the needle going in. Like the animal laying there and letting a needle go into its tail or wherever you're drawing blood from isn't really the behavior. The needle going in isn't the behavior. You're doing that. The behavior that you're bridging and maintaining and for the animal is laying for a duration of time. That's the behavior. So that does get sticky, slippery. And the whole time we were talking about it, I was just thinking to myself, this also does kind of run the line of just teaching and Trisha brought it up, but like a desensitization or just like passive restraint, right? Teaching an animal that like, just don't do anything while I do this to you. Um, but your behavior is not what you're bridging and reinforcing. We have a lot of trainers that will bridge an animal for quote unquote giving blood, but the topography and the criteria that is really poor. It's the human behavior, like Justin said. So yeah. just everybody needs to be really cognizant of that and looking at the animal's behavior and what you want for future criteria and topography and I think a lot of people forget that because they're just like, yeah, I got blood. And you're like, yeah, but they squirmed and freaked out. Yeah, but we got blood. That doesn't teach the animal anything. Trying to get blood the next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe a it, celebration it just, if it's the moment that you like need blood for a very big like emergency where it's like this blood is the most important thing. We're going to worry about behavior second versus we've conditioned this animal for this i've also seen it where there's animals 
the let's just use the some kind of big cat as an example like they lay down in the blood chute and the trainers use like a snake hook to pull the tail out so they can have access to the vein and they'll bridge the animal and reinforce the animal for them pulling their tail out like that's not really the that's not a behavior the beha- a behavior would be the animal getting a cue and then putting its tail out on its own, that would be bridgeable and reinforceable. But really the behavior is the animal laying in that chute for a duration of time. That's another example I can think of. That's what you're bridging. That's what you're reinforcing. Regardless of what's happening around it, the duration stays. So it's desense for duration behavior. But you're defined criteria and topography for that behavior, right? Correct. I think think it's, it's much that it gives a lot more control for that animal to be able to back up but yes. if that facility is at the point where they're only desensitizing the hook to come and grab the tail that's still a behavior oh yeah wait just to clarify i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that what i'm saying is that the animal's not choosing to put its tail out. So to bridge its tail coming out isn't a behavior. That's still a behavior, right? The the animal is allowing the person to put the thingy in to get... I've always learned, it doesn't mean it's right, but I've always learned in psychology, it's like a behavior, the dead man test. You heard of that? Sarah, have you heard of that? The dead man test? Like... Mm -hmm. Is it a behavior? I've heard of Dead Man's Chest, Pirates of the Caribbean 2, but go on. <laughs> well played, sir. No, but I learned it I learned it eons ago, so it could be wrong, but it, it, not just for operant behavior, but like any behavior, if a dead man can do it, it's not a behavior. So like it has to be something that you Ew. can see. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, it was it it was in my co- whatever college textbook it was for behavior modification. You have heard it? Okay, so I'm not entirely crazy yeah so like i look at that behavior the behavior that we were just talking about like that like someone could pick up their tail yeah like the animals not there's no behavior there occurring um don't you think that the animal would escape if it could they didn't want their tail touched yeah it could but that's where i'm saying that you're what you're the behavior the target behavior, the behavior that you're training and maintaining is not the tail coming out. It's laying in the position that you trained it to lay in for X period of time while anything around it happens. I would much rather have the animal give the tail. I'm just, I guess I'm just arguing for arguing sake that it's still a trained behavior. If, the animal's allowing it. The, the what does allowing, what does allowing look like? The, the, the animal's laying down calm. Right. For the, the a duration of time. comes in to grab the tail. And I, the animal's aware of the yes. touch of the tactile stimulation. So it is different than like a dead band, I suppose, in that, in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> that's true maybe maybe we could edit out the dead man although i want to look it up now because i kind of well, forgot no here's the crazy thing i, I look, just typed in the dead man's chest 
test? No, I'm saying Pirates of the Caribbean. I looked up the Dead Man test, and the first peer-reviewed paper that came up literally was them doing an empirical study to show that, in fact, a deceased person cannot have behavior. Like, this is what this entire (laughs) peer-reviewed thing, where they had three individuals who, quote, reasonably could be considered as diseased. And and like under three conditions in which behavior might have observed, none was detected. Like this is literally they had to prove first. Was this in like 2022 or not? When was it? 2018. (laughs) National Library of Medicine. It was 2018. (laughs) Are you kidding me? It's probably it's probably because there was. I bet you there was some crazy lawsuit or criminal thing where the person tried to argue that a dead person could behave in a certain way and then they came back and did like I don't know that's well I li- at least you're gonna I want to edit learned... that out Shane <laughs> I'm keeping it in I, at least I know I learned one thing in college I can't think of anything <laughs> else right now what I'm trying to say is that there's defense and then there's like a duration behavior sure. and they're not right like like if you want the animal to stay in duration like you have to train that and that's what the animal's choosing to do, right? But well, like and control over their environment and, yeah. and their choice and yeah. Okay, now that we've derailed already, let's get into the episode. <laughs> Can you explain more in depth what you mean by the criteria of a behavior having a quote unquote range? So criteria is really whatever you train. So before the animal knows the behavior, um, the trainer or trainers decide what exactly that behavior, the target behavior that they want to train is, what it looks like. And the range is going to be different for different animals, um, just depending on how they were trained. Um, But generally speaking, there's a kind of an average end of criteria a high end of criteria and a low end of criteria. So anything that is on the lowest end um, is still correct. um, But anything less than that lowest would be incorrect. And then obviously average would be what you see probably most frequently or in most scenarios. And then on the high end and above would be more what we would think of as exceptional criteria. And so there's really only four things in any behavior that you can reinforce, right? So it's um, intensity, frequency, duration, and then the topography itself. So depending on the individual animal and what it was trained, an example would be maybe uh, teaching or training a dolphin to do a flip. Um, So the dolphin sees an SD from a trainer, swims out to the middle of the pool, and does a front flip and the criteria is entering the water head first as vertically as possible. And so um, maybe average criteria would be the dolphin sees that SD, does its run down to the bottom of the pool, does its flip out of the surface of the water, let's say eight feet out off the surface of the water and enters the water almost vertically, but not quite vertically. Maybe that's average. That's what um, that animal's reinforced for most frequently. Um, and that's what 
behavior it, it emits most frequently. That's the topography and criteria that the or the dolphin emits most frequently. Um, so that would be maybe average. High end of that criteria would be the dolphin receives the SD and it takes off super excited, high energy, almost before the SD is even completed. And it goes rather than eight feet, it does its front flip 11 feet off the surface of the water and it enters the water uh, after the flip completely vertical. That would be higher end of the criteria. And then just as an example of the low end or below average would be the dolphin takes the SD. There's a slight latency, longer latency, um, which would be the time between the SD and the dolphin initiating the behavior. Um, and he or she does their front flip only just above the surface of the water. Um, they clear the water which is the lowest end of the criteria they were trained. So none of their body hits the surface as they're doing their front flip. And then they re-enter, not quite vertical, but it's still acceptable um, based on what that dolphin has been trained. So that would be lower end. Um, and the range is, I think, important because animals aren't robots. So behavior changes. Um, it's a product of its environment. We can only control so many of the variables and stimuli in the environment. So there's going to be situations where the animal is more likely to show higher criteria. And there might be situations where an animal is more likely to show lower criteria. Um, but I would say the an important note would be there is still incorrect criteria. So low end of criteria does not mean incorrect. It just means maybe less intensity or less duration, something like that. So duration behaviors are another example that I use. So um, our cheetahs are trained to station on a shelf, which is on another side of the enclosure. So the duration there that we condition our cheetahs, depending on the cheetah that we're working with, is between three to five seconds. We could have trained 30 seconds. We could have trained one or two seconds. But we decided three to five seconds was about what we wanted to train. And so three seconds in terms of duration would be the low end and five seconds would be the higher end. Can I ask a question? Sure. It's so, a question for me. Yeah, it's it's for you. I thought that you operationalized the behaviors really well for kind of like low average, high end of criteria. How do you typically respond as the trainer in terms of reinforcing a behavior if you're like, oh, that was on the low end uh, versus, oh, wow, that, you know, exceeded criteria, uh, really enthusiastic response. Do you change the reinforcer value? So just speaking for the animals I work, animals and team and environment I work in right now, the intent is that we, you know, higher criteria receives higher value reinforcers and or more, um, the amount is higher for higher criteria. And then low criteria, we may not even reinforce with primary, or we may reinforce with primary, but just not as much as average or high. So yeah. I think that there are cases, though, like if an animal does a behavior, and it's not 
totally two criteria, but they offered something. And then on the other side of it, they get this reinforcer, which can increase enthusiasm in the very next rep. Um, and then the next time you cue it, it's, you know, maybe exceeding what it was before because they access that reinforcer on the other side for, for trying the behavior. So sometimes I think it's, it's definitely like situation to situation. It's going to be a little different and, but yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's okay to take it. When we're talking about uh, a range of criteria, we're talking, we're talking about that in the context of maintaining already conditioned behavior. So if you start reinforcing outside of that already conditioned range, now you're shaping and ch and you're training new behavior. Arguably, you're always training, right? But like, if you're reinforcing outside of the conditioned range, you're establishing new criteria. So I that might be an important point to make for listeners that like, there is a difference in maintaining behavior versus training behavior. The criteria that's set is what has been conditioned. It's the contingency for the animal. If I if my behavior is within this range, I earn reinforcement. I have the opportunity to earn reinforcement. If it's outside of that range below, I'm not going to. It's like the clear communication to them. I think it comes down to the definition of what the trainers having qualified as the criteria. So something as very blatant and basic as a target touch can be so simple in a trainer's eyes, whereas a flip, a leap, whatever, has a little more wiggle room as far as the definition of the criteria. But at the same time, the trainer needs to predetermine based on the animal's posture, movement, whatever, what they're going to accept as that criteria. But yes. there still has to be a very tight topography defined in the trainer's realm on what's going to be bridgeable, reinforceable. Yes. I liked how you said that, though, about like there's certain behaviors using the front flip as an example that probably in most scenarios has a wider range of criteria something like a target still has a range of criteria, but it's going to be slimmer in most instances. I think the behavioral drift in this context is the humans, not the, the animals that I'm not going to see those. If you're asking an animal to do a behavior that's that quick and the bridge needs to happen or the criteria for reinforcement the topography is so quick on a flip, I'm probably going to see something different than what Shane's going to see, what Sarah's going to see. And, and so that bridge and that opportunity for reinforcement is going to come a little delayed or a little earlier or accepted to be a little higher, a little lower. I think that in this sense is what we're talking about with range and I think that will lead to the behavioral drift. So I think it's super important as humans that we are all on the same page for what the definition of criteria is for said behavior. Agreed. I, so a range of criteria 
to me is the clear communication that we want to provide the animals. They understand what behavior is correct and what behavior is not correct, what they can earn reinforcement for and what they can't. And anytime we're maintaining behavior, it can be challenging, especially on a team. So you said it well, Trisha, like we all see different things. You and I might be working with the same animal, maintaining the same exact behavior. Let's just say that front flip with a dolphin. And you're the trainer for one show asking for the front flip. And three hours later, I'm the trainer for the other show asking for the front flip. And I might see higher criteria in the dolphin's intensity. And you might be looking for higher criteria in the dolphin's duration is not a good example in a flip because they gravity overtakes and they come down, but maybe in a really quick takeoff, a short latency. So there are different elements of the behavior that different trainers might be looking for. But I think defining criteria, at least in my experiences, defining the observable criteria and the range that the animal is trained uh, to do um, is the best way to keep a team of people on the same page and the best way to make it most likely to prevent the behavior from drifting outside of what's already been conditioned. Yeah. So, yes. Okay. So let me poke back and ask the question. Would you say again, Justin, that you would allow a newer trainer to accept just below the range? No, because we never want to reinforce incorrect behavior. Okay. So if it's if it's below the if, it, if it's not the contingency that was conditioned, defined. yeah, defined to the animal, then it's not to me it's not fair. I know this isn't the science part, but it's not fair to reinforce something that nobody else is ever going to reinforce because then it just sets that animal up. You get what you reinforce. It sets the animal up to have that same criteria again um, in order to get reinforcement. And then it doesn't. So I think it's actually a good way to build a poor relationship. Everybody listening to know that as far as communication between the trainer and the animal, it's so important that everyone's consistent on what they're asking the animal to do and what their um, opportunity for emitting that behavior and earning reinforcement. That's clear. And then a relationship reinforcement history, whatever you want to call that after is, is more important, but making sure that, if you've worked with an animal for 20 years or two minutes, that the opportunity for reinforcement is the same across the board. And I would just plug right here that if you are on a team of, of trainers um, working all together in the same space, definitely do this. If you are in a position where you are on a team, but everybody's spread out, try to do this as much as you can, but have other trainers watch your session because as Trisha stated, like everybody sees something different and that watching each other's sessions, seeing what your coworkers are bridging, reinforcing how they're giving SDs, what reinforcement that they're, they're delivering, 
the timing of their reinforcement, all of those things are so important and it's so hard to stay on the same page. I think the best way to stay on the same page in a group is to watch each other as much as possible. And I would say use new trainers too. Even somebody that does it, their, their first day on the job, sometimes they keep me on my toes more than the experienced trainers because they ask really good questions and sometimes things I just take for granted. They see me do something that I'm like, did I actually, did I give the SD like that? And then sure enough, I did. So all eyes, I think, are, they can provide valuable insight. So now we are going to ask another question from one of our listeners. And that question is, what are professional ways to educate someone who approaches you who is against having animals in human care? And this question was specifically asked in the realm of marine mammals, but this definitely relates and branches out to every species. For me, I would take this a couple of different ways. I will say some of the biggest compliments that I've gotten in my life have been from people who knew me in high school and college who have seen things against animals under human care and have said, well, I know that this isn't true because I know Trisha would never stand for anything like this. And that's true and that's a testament to all of us because we all love animals so much and people on the opposite side of having animals under human care also love animals and so for me it's finding the common ground on what's happening in reality of these animals that we love every single day and how we're taking care of them. And unfortunately, how rough it is for animals out in the wild. You know, there's marine mammals that are living in their 20s, where in human care, they're living into their 60s. So that has to be brought up. And unfortunately, the animals that are hurting out in the ocean, that are hurting out in the wild, it's all almost human encroachment. It's entanglement it's pollution it's lack of food it's lack of habitat um, pesticides the list goes on and on and on and so by having these human interferences under the rest of the world we have to help these animals and one of the best ways that we can help them is by educating the public and I can talk all day about conservation, but if I have an animal in front of me, then I have an engaged audience. And if I can show them some of the things that an animal can do and know and learn, then I have a more engaged audience. And so that's gonna help me in the end, help drive the message of people caring about animals. I, there's so many studies about how people will walk past an exhibit, but if an animal is engaged in enrichment that they stay like eight times longer, it's it's something ridiculous about that. And, and so for people who are willing to go to zoos, that's important and getting that message across. And the people that aren't willing to go to zoos, it's more important to help educate them on why zoos matter, on rescue, rehabilitation efforts, and, and the fact that 
humans are hurting the planet so that we have to do something to help and that rescue and rehabilitation efforts start with zoos and aquariums and other accredited facilities. That was really well said. And it is, I wasn't even thinking about if somebody was approaching you who isn't, you know, at the facility, isn't like a zoo guest looking at an animal with you. If it's somebody just kind of in the, in the world, it's a little bit of a harder conversation, I think, because there's such an incredible opportunity when they're there with an animal in front of you, you're able to tell an individual animal story. Like you were saying, an animal demonstrating their behaviors or setting up a defining moment so that somebody can engage with the animal themselves um, can help kind of change their emotions around the topic. But yeah, I've, I, and not coming from a marine mammal background, I know there's so much more kind of behind people's feelings with those specific animals, but, you know, someone just sort of looking at the, a tiger in a zoo and saying that, you know, oh, they feel sad that the tiger is in a zoo um, just because they're catching the tiger sleeping, you know, that's, it's an opportunity to get the animal up and active and, and kind of show them the excellent care that the animals have in zoos and, and set up some moments between them and the people. I agree. I think you all said it very well. Like, I don't feel like I have to I add anything because it was well stated all around. Um, I would add, though, that my humble opinion, I think, you know, how we engage with guests 10, 20 years ago needs to be different than how we engage with them today. When I first started, and you all chime in because we all have our own experiences with this, but, you know, I was taught we don't know how they feel. So if somebody says, hey, that tiger looks sad, one of the answers could be like, well, we really don't know how they feel because they can't. But, you know, what I've learned, especially now, is that, one, I think anybody that works with animals knows that animals do have emotions, right? And we're learning more about that. Um, now it's more um, okay to say now um, than before, but we know animals do. I don't know how they exactly feel because they can't talk to me, but I think that's one of the common grounds, if you will, that almost anybody who's questioning animals and human care um, can relate to because they care about the animal and they're thinking about the animal as if they were in that animal's exact situation. And so to say that we don't know what they feel while it's not untrue that we don't know i think it's a it's a good place to start rather than just having you know clashing opinions it kind of opens the door a little bit i've experienced that a few different times um just talking about maybe that individual animals likes dislikes what they normally do um so even if it's just laying down the tiger's just laying down talking about natural history tigers you know predators conserve energy but this tiger, Sally, whatever her name is, she's really active in the afternoon and she really enjoys enrichment and training sessions, like interacting with trainers seems to be like, you know, her most engaging time of the day, whatever, whatever the case may be for that animal. But I, I do feel like that is a good way to open doors with most people. Well, and, you know, no, we can't know what they're thinking, but we can read their body language. Mm -hmm. If an animal's bug-eyed at me, if their back is arched, if they're 
you know, backing away, they're not comfortable. And then I'm not doing my job as a trainer, as a caretaker of, of making sure these animals know how we want them to know how we want them to feel respected, calm, uh, comfortable in, in their surroundings, enriched. So I think that you can also utilize that body language as an indicator for where the animals are in their interaction throughout the day. I agree. Another, another I think, good, maybe not common ground, but maybe eye-opener um, for people who are coming into a conversation with the mindset that they're already against uh, human animals and human care. Um, but I know I've used this one a lot, almost every time I, I run into a situation like that in some way I try to bring it up, but is operant conditioning and training and how operant conditioning is at play in Africa for, you know, animals that they might be looking at from Africa, um, for any animal and humans, it's, it's how we interact with our environment. It's what we're designed to do. Um, so I think if you have that conversation the right way, so and that the easy ones, um, easy time to bring that up is when, um, well, I feel bad. They, you know, if they don't do the show, they don't get their food. Um, but kind of relating that to, it would be less desirable just to throw food at them and not interact with them all day, because that is more unlike what they would experience, um, out in the wild. Um, I, I tend to use the example of like, I would personally love if somebody set me up at a really nice hotel, um, and I had room service for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I would, I would love it. Right. Nobody around just relaxing by myself. Food's delivered to me, but no matter how much space I had or how good the food was or how much food I had, probably a few days into it, it's not going to matter because I'm going to be lacking that engagement with my environment that the real world provides. So I think that's another really good example for, for guests that don't work with animals on why what we do is important and how um, a way to enrich our animals um, is through our interactions with them. Well, I think people don't understand that the animals do have control over their environment, right? Yeah. We don't move the gate unless they say we can. We don't, we can't make them participate in any situation. And if, if they don't, if they're choosing not to, then we have to assess ourselves mm -hmm. and what we're doing wrong to not make it worth their time. So I think those are also important things for people to understand. Those can be a little higher questions that they might ask versus just them being on exhibit or in an enclosure or I don't know any animal in the wild that gets free food regardless of their age right like they're working for their food and if they're not working for it they're not eating it's how you survive um so I think you know for me communicating like the real life struggles that an animal may go through you know, out in the wild, I, I think all of the examples you brought up about like the pollution and, and things like that, 
but even if it was a blue sky, we had no pollution, we had none of the human caused problems, animals still are working to survive. They're staying away from predators. They're working to find food. Um, they're working to keep their food when they find it. They're all of those things. So they kind of have to be on their game. So the idea of just kind of feeling bad because they're, you know, I feel bad if they're just laying down, not having any of that mental stimulation. Of course, they don't have to avoid predators in human care and they don't have to go find food, but it also allows us to take better care of them through cooperative care behaviors and things like that, which is another, there's so many doors that or topics that open doors. The cooperative care behaviors, I think, is another one. Depending on the conversation and the individual that you're answering, that potentially could be another door to open is cooperative care. Well, so I'm not to go down a rabbit hole, but I'm curious because I'm sure all of you have been asked this. I know I have in some way, shape, or form, but how do you answer the question about do you ever put them into retirement or do they get to retire? It depends on the animal. I mean, we, well, at a zoo that I was working at before, um, where we were building yards for some of the animals to go and retire into, and then um, bringing, you know, younger animals in, calling it retirement. Um, but, you know, they're going to have a free operant environment. And it was just sort of, uh, environment dependent right of zoo with a lot of mountainous terrain and bears living well beyond their expected age range they're going to need a little bit of a different environment so i think that one depends on the zoo probably um in the area that they're living in animals you know surviving in the wild as you said they have skill sets in order to survive and i bring up you know finding food staying away from predators um, so they never really get a free day. They don't get, I don't know of any animal that gets, you know, a free meal delivered to them. They have to, they have to work for it. So, you know, I kind of bring that up in some way, shape or form and the, how in human care it's different, but it doesn't mean that it's bad or less. It's just different. They're using that same uh, operant conditioning in just a, the same way, but for different results. So I, I tend to bring that up. And then I also think about, you know, us humans, when we get old and go into quote unquote retirement, our needs change drastically, right? Like we might need less space. Like we might not be able to be mobile enough to live in a big house. A lot of older people have to go from a big house to a smaller house. So they don't have stairs or showers, you know, right. Um, that they can walk into rather than a bathtub that they have to step over. and diet requirements change and so you know we animals and human care have all of that tailored to them so that's one of the reasons their longevity is tends to be longer in human care um, than not well for me whenever any of these topics come up i talk a lot about the relationship you know i've said it a lot that almost every single time that i am talking with people, educating people, I talk about the relationship is the most important thing that we do is building that and that we want the animals to have emotions, positive emotions, excitement, happiness, 
eagerness, etc. when they see us. And so everything that we do is in service of that and giving them this life where those are the feelings that are at the forefront. Just like us as humans, we do things that make us feel good and we go into situations that make us feel good and we like. So talking about that and also I think just being real and connecting with them in the way of saying we spend more time with our animals than we do with our friends and family. That is the reality of the care that we're giving them. And then because of that and with that relationship, we know them better than we know humans. Like we can tell almost instantly if something is quote unquote off, if something's different, if something is good. Like, so we can use all those things to provide our animals with this enriched, productive life where they they have opportunities that are filling them with positive emotions. And so when I hear like at retirement, I would talk about how knowing these animals so well, we're able to tell by their behavior because they're communicating with us. They are everything that they do. And because we know them so well, we are able to allow them to communicate to us that their needs are changing. So we can adjust the way that we're caring for them to put them in quote unquote retirement. As you talked more, that was my first answer, but as you talked more about like why people might be saying retirement, the one thing that I hear people say all the time, and a lot of times it's not even malicious. I just had someone the other day say, oh yeah, those tricks you're making them do. Like I think some people say that word, but I think other people are in all of what they're doing and that's just the word that they use. So I think maybe when people are saying retirement, they might have the view of that we are making the animals do these things. You're doing a training session on habitat where the goal is to have the animal be running from one end to the other because that's good for their muscles. That's the natural behavior they do. You're training something. They're doing all this to someone who isn't quite aware of it. They might think that we're making this animal run back and forth. And so they might be wondering, like, do you ever let them retire and not do that? And I think the answer would just be we listen to our animals and we know we know when they're not going to do that. And also the fact that if they don't want to run in that moment, they are not going to run. They're going to give us different things. Like I'm sure we've all had those training sessions where we have a plan in our head and then you can just tell by their behavior, the way the animal is approaching you, you're like this super high energy behavior, like session that we had probably not, not going to be set up for success because of how this animal is even just approaching us. So I think in all of these conversations, just really driving home the fact that we are in this job, we are doing what we're doing in service of the animals, building that relationship and giving them the best life that we possibly can. For me, the, the retirement thing is our job is to provide mental stimulation for them. And if that is playing shuffleboard or <laughs> doing a run, it, it, that's our job is to take the best care of these animals every day. And yes, out in their natural environment, they might have to evade predators. They might have to re um, reserve their energy for when they need to escape or, or catch or whatever. But we're just providing that mental stimulation and that needs to happen throughout their entire life. Now the veterinarians can deem what the animal should or shouldn't do, but you know, I have worked with a, a dolphin, he's 54, he's blind. They get everything that we can look forward to later in life, right? But he still chooses to do things 
and usually does them much faster than some of the animals in their teens as far as doing interaction programs. So I, I think that that's a testament to his relationship with his trainers and what he is choosing to do every day from a physical and mental standpoint. Love and, it. By the way, the range of criteria will likely change as an animal ages. We don't oh, have to circle but, right? back. We might lower we might lower criteria for an older animal. I also think about how an animal in the wild, you know, they're done with one behavior reinforcer contingency. They get up and they start walking until they get to the next one. And animals in zoos get up and start walking and go to the next thing too. So yeah, facilitating a free opera environment in a zoo setting, um, we can absolutely achieve the same similar conditions. They just don't have to walk as far. Yeah, that's it. I like that. I'm going to sell that too, probably. Full disclosure. <laughs> well, we've done a lot of studies, especially on animals like elephants on their walking versus out in the wild. And of course, the main reason why an animal travels far is to have those positive consequences to have, to find the food, to escape predators. They, they're not going to exert any more energy than they need to in order to survive. So an animal may travel hundreds of miles out in the ocean, but it, they're only doing that to find food because of the overfishing of the, the lack of food, not because they're choosing to go on a long jaunt. That That's, that's not their motivation for going to that next step an example i've given to people in the past with that same kind of question um was with the dolphins i worked with we had um 10 different dolphins ranging from you know young calves to to older animals males females and we had a very large front show pool um and it was large in both surface area and depth. And then we had two smaller than that behind the scenes pools. And then a very tiny medical pool that was very shallow and small all around surface area. And of course, you know, the medical pool, the animals earned lots of reinforcement in there. We made it as fun and positive as possible. Um, just on a daily basis. Um, we used it for fun things too, not just when it was time to do, um, you know, a medical, a scary medical thing. So, um, of course, we tried to make the medical things not scary. But the point is, it was the smallest environment that those dolphins had access to. And in their free time, nine times out of 10, they were in the medical pool. And obviously, not all 10 would fit in the med pool. So, um, they would be kind of trying like, you know, squeeze in and another one would have to come out. And so they would actually almost, you know, fight, argue over the smallest space that they had. And so, again, that's just like one of my real life examples of how it's not necessarily the amount of space. It's it's your consequences, your experiences over time um, in the space. 
And that was free choice. That was outside of training sessions. They would choose to be in there. And another topic I just wanted to bring up because all of you have said this, you've talked about this, but I wanted to specifically state it as it pertains to this question is that now in 2023, a modern zoo, we are very science focused. And that is something that we can also talk to guests about, not shying away from the fact that what we do is a science, both in behavior and also welfare. A modern zookeeper is not just cleaning up things and putting food in. A modern zookeeper is a behaviorist who is watching all these things that we are gathering data for welfare assessments that we're doing all these things. And I recently was talking with a, a young adult couple and they were super interested. And the more and more we got, I remember one of them was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how intensive all that was. And I think I would encourage people to not shy away from talking about those things because we are the experts and we can portray ourselves as experts in animal behavior and animal care that can also help to shape people's opinions. I also just want to point out that everybody's responses were so compassionate. You know, I think um, zookeepers can feel defensive about the topic, but I love how conversational everybody's kind of promoting these these topics to look like or whatever. Sorry, that was a weird sentence, but um just like thanking them for caring about the animals and for for approaching you and asking you about it and wanting to learn more. Um, I think it's cool. It's a cool opportunity when somebody does come forward and want to talk about it with a zookeeper. It's such a great opportunity to educate. And we can't force anybody to believe anything. You know, it's just another opportunity to learn something new and then they'll they'll make their own choices. Yeah, that's Thank you for that positive reinforcement for us. <laughs> and which brings up, sorry, rabbit hole again, but like that brings up another really important thing, I think, is that, you know, the days of like, we don't want to talk to guests, taking the long way to avoid the guest pathway, like those days also need to be over because we're answering a question about how do you respond to a guest that asked, but there's probably way more guests that don't ask. So we need to be out there engaging with them because just a guest that comes to our park, our zoo, our aquarium, um, and they get to meet one of us that get to work with the animals. That's like the coolest thing in the world. Like it's a vicarious thing, right? Like they, they get to experience the animals through us. Um, and whether they're an adult or a kid, meeting the people that take care of the animals is cool and that's an opportunity for us to change the minds of so many people so just because they're not asking they're just walking by the graphics doesn't mean the opportunity is not there we just might need to initiate it well and like sarah was saying the common ground is we guess people outside the gates and and us everyday caretakers alike we all want the best for the animals and then we have to come together to see what that looks like and it can be different for every individual but 
as long as they have the facts, I think that everybody understands that we're all trying to do what's best for the animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we don't have to go all the way down this because Mark Simmons said it way better than I could definitely educate people about this but if you haven't if you're interested in this topic definitely check out episode 10 with mark and he talks a lot about this and one of the takeaways for me was him saying that if the way we are talking about what we do matters because he said if we take the word captivity out of our mouths the word captivity will come out of the hearts of people so just by phrasing how we do things is going to affect how the public is viewing us. And by celebrating the fact that as animal care professionals working in zoological institutions, we are species preservationists because all those things that Trisha talked about earlier with conservation is also happening. So what was also cool about this conversation is we talked some specifics, whereas if you listen to episode 10 with Mark, you're going to get to hear some really great, just overarching ideas of where the field is currently and where we can go as well. All right, now it is time, womp womp, for our final question. So this is a two-part question, and we're going to start with, how do you politely guide guests towards refraining from labeling animals? Kind of fits perfectly into the discussion that we just had. Yeah, well, quick shout out to Katie Stevens episode on labels that she did because she rocked it. It was such a great listen. Um, so yeah, I recommend anyone that still needs to listen to that episode to go back. Um, and that's episode 16, if you're wondering. Thank you. Episode. I 16. love that you just know the episodes off the top of your head. It's amazing. <laughs> I look at the podcast a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a really great question to dive into. Um, and the cautioner from this listener is totally warranted because there, there can be a lot of issues around using constructs to create a hypothetical explanation for behavior. Uh, there's a lot of different examples of labels, some that I hear a lot just from the dog consulting side of things, aggressive, ankle biter, dominant, anxious, protective, territorial, reactive, jealous. Um, all of these words that beg the question, what does that look like? <laughs> um, and there there are some fallouts to using labels, especially on the animal care side. I know we're talking zoo guests first, but um, if, if you are someone who is taking care of an animal, uh, whether it's your pet at home or, you know, a, a zoo animal, um, Susan Friedman identifies a list of fallouts that can come from entering a session with with a label in the back of your head. Some some of those fallouts are uh, well, labels tend to create this circular reasoning. They're unverifiable, right? It's totally subjective. You can't test it. Uh, they give you a false sense of having explained behavior when all you've really done is give it a name. They can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Rosenthal's work on how expectations set the stage for behavior to occur um, is something to note. So subtle changes in your body language going into a session with a bird that you have a label in your head, aggressive, you know, you, you might get bit just because you are going in thinking you're working with an aggressive bird. Labels provide excuses to give up. They can predispose us to use ineffective, forceful, or harmful strategies, especially labels around dominance. 
and they end the search for actual causes that we can do something about. So when it comes to, to hearing a label, we know all of these things and the stakes can feel high when we hear a label. I, I like to kind of go on to two courses. Um, one is the course of compassion and, and the other is a course of curiosity. So um, I try to remember, especially especially the general public living in society, <laughs> very fluent in labeling animals, right? We all grew up learning how to label animals first. I know a two-year-old that's already learned how to say bad dog. And so it's just, it's something behaviorally we are all super fluent with. And I just remember that we're really lucky to be on the side of kind of a higher education around how to observe behavior. Um, and I also remember that it's an effortful pivot to move society into a direction away from labeling animals and towards observing behavior in context of the environmental conditions surrounding it. It's something that takes a lot of repetitions and practice and refinement. So um, yeah, I can kind of approach the person um, a lot more kindly if I just keep all of those things in mind. But as far as curiosity goes, I mean, there are some, some basic questions that you can ask. And the first one is defining what the label looks like, what the behavior looks like within that label. So you can ask, what does that label look like? What do you mean by anxious? What behavior did you see that you're calling anxious? And then once we have the behavior, we can search for our antecedent stimulus, you know, what did you see that came right before the behavior that, that evoked that behavior to occur? And what outcome is that behavior producing? What did the animal gain or get away from by doing that behavior? I guess I'm more, <laughs> these would be better questions for the professional side because guests really, really relax criteria for them. I'm just, they, they can usually get a lot more information from us based on what they're seeing and we can fill in most of the blanks for them in the context. Um, so yeah, it kind of depends on, on the context and what the guests are, are looking at and what they're saying. How do you guys handle guests that, that you see are labeling an animal? A broken record actually, because I think it depends on the guests. Like we said it before on the individual and the environment overall, I feel like I mostly try to do about the same as what you described, but in a way different way, right? Like not as scientific about it. I might not say like, what was the consequence to that behavior? But, you know, phrase it in a more relatable way. Um, but I do think that we should, well, I do think that we should not label our animals, but in certain situations with certain guests, it sometimes isn't all bad, right? Like, cause it's how they understand the, the world and the animal that they're seeing. Um, so I'm trying to think of, you know, of a specific example, but like, sometimes I, I go with the, the labeling, the guest labeling, but try to like tr change their perception. So their labels are more accurate than at face value, right? Um, give them more information about maybe that individual or the species natural history um, if they are just really only thinking in labels. So like rather than 
fighting a battle with certain people of not labeling, maybe just have them have a more accurate understanding of that animal in more accurate, using more accurate labels. But overall, I, I think I try to do the same thing that you described, but just in an easier, more conversational way. I think one of the great things, if someone is there asking you, is because of our knowledge and relationships, we can also explain. So when her last question, Sarah mentioned that someone might see a tiger sleeping and think that they're sad because they have this big habitat and they're choosing to sleep. Well, if someone's asking them that, we can provide information about that specific animal on that specific day. Maybe we got hay from the hoofstock barn and we spread it all across the entire habitat. And that tiger spent the entire morning going around, smelling every single thing, scent marking all these things. And then now they're choosing to sleep because they had this purposeful morning and doing all these things. Maybe we gave them, we can tell them like, oh, we gave them this big shank from an animal and they generally when they're satiated that's when they sleep I mean, we can kind of as humans you know there's science behind all of that those things on why that makes us sleepy or we just did this training session where blah blah this was happening like the tiger is learning to climb this tree and all this stuff so maybe they're taking a rest because all these things so i think that's another key factor that if we do have a guest that is saying these things to us specifically in the moment, we can tell them about that animal. Obviously, it's different if you're in a grocery store and someone's talking to you, but you can still kind of talk through all those reasons why these animals are behaving this way. And then also just ultimately saying that this is their choice. It's what they're choosing to do. I know as a human, some days I want to take a nap. Some days I'm a mad person doing crazy things. So day to day is different too. Well, I would also say that Rather than focusing on what we don't want the public or the guests to do, which I guess in this case is not label animals, kind of go back to just the basics. Like, why are we there? Why are they there? Um, and I believe Steve Martin said this and probably said it way better than me. Um, but I remember Steve saying along these lines that, you know, really we what we want is for the guests to leave thinking that that animal that they saw that you talked to them about, or they saw do we, you know, do a behavior. We want them to leave thinking that the animal's really cool and that they want to help save and protect that animal um, and that species. So if they leave to me, if they leave our interaction uh, or my interaction with them or their interaction with that animal, with the idea of that animal is amazing and we really need to help them and they leave with, you know, tangible ways to do that. And their understanding is with labels. Is that the worst thing in the world? I think it's a different scenario for us trainers and behaviorists using labels um, because it is more dangerous. And Sarah mentioned all the reasons why, you know, we shouldn't, but in reality, the public that's that's labeling the animals they're not trainers but they can actively go out and help protect and conserve animals so you know if their understanding is with the construct is it the worst thing i'm not that bothered anymore by the general public labeling animals yes especially on this side of behavior consulting i what i've kind of learned is is people 
just like the general public people with no real training background or knowledge, they tend to choose labels based on how they feel about whatever they're experiencing. So I just kind of let the label breeze by. There's usually more information following it. And there's there's good questions that we can ask. I really don't give the label lecture to the average person because I just want to make sure that they know they know what to do instead. It's not just about don't use labels, like you said. It's um, learning how to observe behavior and uh, verbally define it, just so we're all on the same page about what we're looking at. All right. So the second part of this question from the listener was advice on how you, general you, can professionally discuss labeling with your coworkers. If you have a coworker that is maybe labeling in not the most productive way, what are some ways that you can help professionally change that conversation? But I would go back to what Sarah said. Part of what Sarah said earlier was just about without, you know, in the right tone, friendly tone, um, what does it look like? Like going back to that, I think causes people to think deeper rather than lecturing them, you know, what a construct is and why they're bad, because that might just close the door. They're not, you know, they're not going to listen, but just simply asking, what does it look like? Or what did you see that made you, that makes you think that those kinds of questions I think are most constructive. I think for labeling animals between professionals, like we've been talking about, it's not defined. If I walk up to somebody and they say, this animal was in a bad mood, that's not defined for me. I, there's nothing that I'm going to look for in, in the next session to help me determine what they saw in the previous session. So what I need to know is where the animal succeeded and where they failed. And that hopefully the trainers can tell me why they failed and why they succeeded. And that gives me the information I need to make sure the animal succeeds in the next session. It's not that they're jealous or pissy or whatever label you want to put on it. It's what the animal's behavior is showing you to set them up for success for their next session with said training. I think it's also, I was thinking about the context where you might see or hear a label with other professionals, like how frustrating it is when there's some animal notes that you're reading through to get updated on. And it's just all of these labels and you have no idea what anything looked like. So even just practicing in our animal logs and taking notes or thinking about animals when you receive a new animal from another facility all of the labels that come stacked with them that just aren't helpful um just clearly defining behavior and context is it's just the best communication that we can offer with each other to to set our animals up for success well and just to go back to the question I think basically we're all saying to replace the word refraining from labeling animals to defining I do think another 
kind of interesting aspect of this question too is that as welfare science is becoming more understood by animal care professionals that are caring for the animals as we are doing a lot more of this in welfare we can't use words like i think or i feel we have to use empirical data we have to use observations to be able to inform those decisions so i think that with that mindset and also our training mindset that we kind of see labeling fall off because if we have to continue to ask ourselves like what does that look like why do we feel this is happening let's figure out what the data what the animal is showing us kind of takes that away and to echo what everyone said for me just asking like what does that look like it sounds so simple but if your team is saying that you're going to eventually stop saying it because then people will just automatically be operationalizing what is happening and what they're seeing. Yeah, they'll start predicting that prompt and offer the behavior. <laughs> and that's why we're a behavior podcast. Most occasions in a professional environment, I think the most common constructs would be, you know, aggression. As you said, Sarah, dominance, but aggression, especially, I feel like that is usually what I, you know, if I hear a construct come out in a, conver- a, a training conversation, a behavior conversation, it's that. And then we have to define that more. So asking more questions usually gets to the bottom of that. Rarely do I hear people saying, well, you know, that animal is just silly or she just doesn't, whatever, you know, like kind of extraneous constructs. I feel like aggression is a very common one. Are there any other common ones that you guys can think of that you hear like from teams you've been on? I think a common one is dumb or something. Or smart, right? Or smart, yes. You can both, something like the ones that are focused on intelligence that takes away looking at that, those ABCs and puts in that label of, oh, this didn't happen because they can't think about it. They're dumb. They can't do that. So I think that's a common one. Yeah. Or like unmotivated. I feel like stubborn. Well, that's one. That is one for sure. Cool. All right. Um, Does anybody have any training tales? Because the last episode I had to to give one myself because I was like, I forgot to ask. So Kiara today, so she retrieves, she does her run, catches the lure, picks it up, brings it in the bucket, that whole thing. So today her run wasn't like, Actually, it was slightly below average criteria. So we had her not catch the lure. She was correct, but it wasn't great. So we had her not catch the lure. And the spotter was waiting to call her, to recall her back. And she was at the complete other side of the exhibit where she lost the lure. And I'm like, this is getting weird because she just wasn't coming back. She was just walking around down there. And I'm like, that's not like her. Because usually she's like, ah, didn't get it this time. Like, let's reset. I want to try again. And it went on and on and on. And then she was like sticking her head down. Like the grass was kind of high down there, sticking her head in the grass. And I'm like, what is she doing? And she comes back with this little tiny white feather that was not part of the lure. It must have just been a feather that something like an ibis. Uh... Yeah, like an ibis feather. And like she, it took her forever to pick it up because it was like this big. And she comes the whole way down to the other side. And I'm like, she label completely outsmarted us because like the retrieval happens when you catch the lure, but she's like, yeah, I don't need the lure. Let me go find something else on my own to retrieve. And she brought it the whole way back and then was like, where's the bucket? 
That's amazing. Oh, she generalized. She generalized her little self. And that concludes today's episode, answering some of those questions that our listeners have sent in about the podcast so far. But of course, all this information just scratches the surface. So if you have any questions at all, please reach out on any of the ABMA social channels or by emailing abc at theabma.org. We'd love to hear from you because this podcast is made for you. So if you have any questions or topics that you would like covered, please let us know. We plan to do some more of these panel answering episodes in the future. So please send any of those questions or topics that you would like covered. A special thank you once again to our panel of guests, to Trisha, Sarah, and Justin. James McAleb for our theme song, Ayla on the Beat, sung by the ever-talented Ayla the Sea Lion all of our ABMA members, and to you for listening and joining in on the behavior conversation. If you aren't already a member, please consider joining the ABMA by visiting theabma.org as we all strive to better the lives of animals around the world. Stay tuned into the ABMA's Facebook page for Behavior Month starting next week, October 2023. And then also subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and join us next week on Animal Behavior Conversations as we kick off our special Behavior Month podcast talking about cooperative care. In the meantime, thanks for joining us and happy training. We can call it whatever we want. I think to borrow from Susan, she says we can call this behavior Dumbledore, you know. We just have to define it. Um, we don't have copyrights to that. Can you say something? Just <laughs>